You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We'd like to thank ZipRecruiter for their continued support of SpyCast. You'll hear more about this great company later, but first, let's meet our guest. So we're joined today by James Stasekel, who began his military training as an airborne infantryman serving with the 82nd Airborne. He then qualified for Special Forces and successfully completed the arduous Q course to win his Green Beret. He served with the U.S. Army Special Forces in many interesting places worldwide, including Berlin, the Balkans, the Middle East, and Africa, before retiring as a Chief Warrant Officer for after 23 years. He then worked as a security consultant for a U.S.-based non-governmental organization in Central Africa during the Rwandan insurgency and Second Congo War. I doubt it was the Peace Corps, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, he was later recruited by the CIA and served as a senior intelligence operations officer, or case officer in Africa, Europe, and the Far East before retiring again. He is the author of a relatively new book that came out this year called Special Forces Berlin, Clandestine Cold War Operations of the U.S. Army's Elite, 1956 to 1990. Welcome, James. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. So people out there may know a little bit about Special Forces, although nowadays lowercase s, lowercase f Special Forces is kind of this umbrella term to cover everybody. Here we're actually talking about the U.S. Army's specific unit, so capital S, capital F Special Forces, the Green Berets. Now, they've been around for quite some time. They have been everywhere from Vietnam and every other war we fought since. But the Special Forces Berlin unit was somewhat different. It wasn't just the same old, same old Green Beret unit. So what was, or what were, some of the things that made them different than the, you know, Fort Bragg-based SF unit? Well, first off, um, while they were in Berlin, uh they were hidden in plain sight. Uh, most other special forces units, you can see a sign, you know where they're based. The ones in Berlin uh, were not. They uh, wore civilian clothes. The unit was undercover, had a different name, and uh, the soldiers wore civilian clothes. Um, it was unique in that regard. Also unique in they had to learn uh, intelligence tradecraft how to survive as a clandestine operator in a city. Those are two of the big reasons. Let me ask you about training. The SFQ course is a, is a bear, and SF people go through some of the most rigorous training, even after they get accepted to special forces. They're doing language school. They're doing school, whether weapons or engineering or medicine. Was there an added level of training 
that was on top of all of this that the Special Forces Berlin unit took upon? Well, to get there, there were some added qualifications. You had to speak either German at a very high level or an Eastern European language. You had to be qualified, fully qualified as a Special Forces soldier and be willing to wear civilian clothes in time of wartime. Now, that's actually one of Aaron Banks, the founder of Special Forces, original qualifications. But uh, a lot of guys were not prepared to live in a city, live in civilian clothes, and be prepared to be behind the lines from, from day one. Yeah, but the mission was dramatically different also. I mean, these are basically stay-behinds. The idea is that you're not... A lot of SF units are designed to go teach insurgency to some far-off place. The unit was designed, if World War III kicked off, that they would stay behind and work behind enemy lines during the war. They were already behind right. enemy lines as <laughs> far as anyone else yeah. was concerned. So, and the the Russians had an inkling that we had a special forces unit there. Uh, that's why they tried to uh, cover their existence. Uh, so the guys, yes, uh, they had to be ready to fight from day one uh, behind enemy lines. It was sort of a Hail Mary um, play for the American and the NATO forces because the the U.S. European commander um, knew that the Russians had a decided advantage uh, on, on D-Day. 90 divisions compared to about 60, uh, Warsaw Pact versus NATO. And uh, Special Forces Berlin was supposed to give him just a bit of an edge, at least in the initial days. The idea was that you'd operate not only fighting, we call this the soft, squishy parts. You'd go after bridges and loggerheads and you go create chaos in the rear in many cases right even this is this trying to slow down you're not taking on tanks you're going after a lot of the things that make an army go i'm having a hard time of visualizing me going against a tank but uh (laughs) berlin had a unique characteristic in that it was surrounded by the east german railway system and it was basically the key focal point for all rail traffic coming from Eastern Europe towards Western Europe. And we knew, the intelligence sources told us, that the Russians were going to move their troop trains, their armor trains, everything around what was called the uh, Berliner Ring, which was the rail network around the city. If you could stop that by sabotage, blowing bridges, blowing um, railway links, you could easily slow down the the massive amount of Soviet forces moving forward. And maybe just enough to give a strategic advantage or to, to equalize kind of the strategic disadvantage that the conventional forces in the West were dealing with. Yes. The traditional forces were basically waiting in the folded gap uh, for the Russians to come through. And this would... Uh, one of the UCOM commanders said, basically, your mission is to buy me time. And 72 hours was what he was hoping for. We were hoping for a bit longer than that. But um, that's, that was basically it. And a lot of the members of this unit were, were people who weren't born in the United States. They actually were born in Eastern Europe, and they had been nationalized U.S. citizens. And so they would have a distinct advantage if the war broke out, infiltrating into their former countries because they were from those countries? Well, in the early 1950s, there was an act called the Lodge Act, Public Law 57. It was basically to allow the enlistment of 
people from Eastern Europe into the American Army. And it was specifically for special forces because we knew that we were going to need these people behind the lines. There were quite a few in the unit. Um, in the 1950s, 1960s, probably 45% was Eastern European, sometimes German. Germans were not part of the Lodge Act. And quite a few Americans of first generation, uh, immigrant parents. Um, later on, that would taper off, but uh, even in the 1980s, uh, we had quite a few foreigners and uh, who were American citizens and uh, first immigration, uh, first generation immigrants. So. so I should probably point this out because I've been using a lot of pronouns as of you. You said we, I've said you in referring to this unit. You were a member of what was called Detachment A of Special Forces in Berlin. Uh, what drove you to this unit? What what made you say, I want to be a part of this elite unit that may not have a very long lifespan if World War III broke out? Actually, for some strange reason, we never really thought about that. <laughs> um, I actually served in the unit twice, once when it was Detachment A, and then, as I describe in the book, a second unit took its place called Physical Security Support Element. I served there um, for a total of about 10 years. When I came into the Army, I came in as an airborne infantryman. I quickly decided that I did not want to be an airborne infantryman. <laughs> um, something to do with the 1972 Israeli uh, Arab War. And then um, Special Forces was the next step for me. But when I found out about Detachment A Berlin, um, I wanted to go serve there because of its unique uh, nature. Uh, the ability to work in a city and out in the field like a conventional special forces soldier. It's kind of hard to say conventional right. special forces soldier because they aren't. But um, it was just an, a unique assignment. Uh, over the years, I think a total of about 800 people served there. This is from 1956 to 1990. Uh, not very many uh, when you look at the, the broad right. picture of things. About 100, about 100 to 110 uh, at any one time. What, what is your uh, nationality? What's your background? What made you qualified to be in a unit where you essentially had to blend in almost completely? Well, I'm half Czech and half Greek. Uh, my parents spoke English, but uh, coming up, I learned uh, German and French. And uh, those were two of the qualifications that I used to get into the unit. So let me talk about writing this book because you're not just a historian, but you are a member uh, of this unit. What, what, made you want, number one, want to write a, a book about the history, but also what makes now the time to do this? Were, were these documents just recently classified? Because I, I've studied a lot, and I've never run into this unit you know, in a lot of the archives. This is something that's relatively new, and were you given, obviously interview-wise, you got great access, but were you given unique access to this topic? Unique access in that I had to find it myself. <laughs> um, we um, we have a an annual reunion, and uh, several years ago, some of the guys were complaining that nobody has put this history down, and uh, I realized that nobody was going to unless we took it into our uh, own hands to do it. Um, the Army would not do it. And in fact, when I went to the Center for Military History, uh, they had about six pages of, of documents on it. Uh, I managed to dig up some more links in the uh, National Archives, but primarily I relied on uh, the people who had served there, 
about 65 interviews. And when I used an interview, I cross-checked it to make sure he wasn't selling me a story. But um, we, we just decided this was the time. And 25 years had passed, and so most of the declassification requirements uh, were there. Um, but quite frankly, my manuscript had to be completely declassified. It took the, it took the government uh, 14 months, had to go through the Department of Defense, CIA, NSA. Right, and people cetera, find out if they even mention the name of one of these agencies, they've got to get stuff cleared yeah. through that. Um, well, let's kick it back to, to historically the beginning of, of this. What, what showed, the United States Army is an extraordinary organization, but it's huge and it's slow moving. So sometimes there needs to be an impetus, a catalyst, to get it to think in different ways. So what got the United States Army thinking that they needed a specialized unit of stay-behinds that turns into this detachment? Well, 10th Special Forces Group had been posted to Bedholz, Germany, uh, in the southern part of western Germany. And about the same time, the commander of the Berlin Brigade realized he, need some, he needed some additional assets. And he requested demolition teams. Well, the only um, the only unit that could provide what he wanted was special forces, and all of a sudden the military realized that if you put six teams in Berlin, you wouldn't have to worry about getting the air force to fly through East German airspace. And uh, in 1956, the first guys were sent up to Berlin, and that was really the genesis. Well, that's an interesting thing. And throughout the book, you, you there's a lot of training when it, jumping out of airplanes, right? All the all SF guys are. Sp- Special uh, airborne qualified, a lot of training missions where you would drop into somewhere. The likelihood of that happening during World War III was like essentially none. I, this wasn't going to be kind of a right out of a movie where there's this big parachute or halo parachute drop. The likelihood is you were infiltrating through sewers or through underground or through safe houses as as civilians. This was old school, more spy stuff than really military special ops stuff. Well, that was, that was basically the plan, is if the war started, uh, the teams would melt into the city, disappear, essentially, until the time, the opportune time when they could cross the wall, or in some cases, guys were going to do missions within the city itself. Um, so we looked at every bit of intelligence information we could find out about our section of the wall to figure out where we could go over it, go through it, or go under it. And that was the plan. One thing I found really interesting was that on top of the actual military training that you did, you essentially were doing full-fledged intelligence operations training. You know, everything from uh, working on uh, communications that were non-technical, you know, dead drops and brush passes, to uh, establishing cover stories and everything else. What was the problem, and this was solved much, much later on, where it was interesting to see that the the idea of, yes, we want them to be in civilian clothes and kind of blend into the rest of Berlin, but the whole idea of a cover never got so much further than that. There were a lot of inconsistencies in the early times when people were asked, what are you doing here? What unit do you belong to? What is your job? Why did they not, I mean, this may be an unanswerable question, why did they not come up with some kind of consistent cover for why these units were in Berlin? I don't think any of the special units that were in Berlin, uh, to include the CIA or the signal intercept people, had a good cover. Um, 
because the Army never thought about that. Even the agency didn't think about it. You sent the people there, they were part of a unit. If somebody asked you what you did, you said, I support the Berlin Brigade, etc. You know, beyond that, you're on your own, son. But uh, in the early 1980s, they realized that that wasn't enough. If you want to cover these guys, if you want to protect them, then you have to have an umbrella that's going to shield them. And that's where the second unit came in, which had a cover that was reasonable. And I knew it was good because when a special forces guy from the States told me that all we did was physical security surveys, I knew the cover worked because that's what it was. Right. I mean, it's one thing to fool the enemy. It's another thing to fool your own guys. And if you're fooling your own guys, then you're doing a pretty good job in creating a cover. Hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> one thing also, the training and counter-surveillance I thought was interesting. Because this is, you know, Berlin is the city of spies, but you're not there really to do intelligence operations. You're do, there to make sure the East Germans and the Soviets don't know who you are and what your job is. How much training, the two times that you were there... How much time did you spend making sure that you were clear of surveillance from the, the Stasi or from the Soviets? Well, actually, we, we tried to make sure we were clear of the West Berlin police, too, <laughs> uh, because they always, or the British, um, we worked in the American sector, of course, which was easy to um, work in. But working in the British sector, the French sector, you had to be aware that those guys were not friendly either. Uh, they were looking out for them, especially the British. They were looking for IRA terrorists. And oddly enough, a guy in a leather jacket, about 25 to 30 years old, probably carrying a gun, looks to the British like he might be an IRA terrorist. Right. So, uh, so we had to work against them. Uh, we had good trainers. We had people come in from the CIA who did training. And to learn counter-surveillance, you have to learn surveillance first. So we did that, and then counter-surveillance. So on a daily basis, yes, uh, you're employing all these techniques, not only against the Russians and the East Germans, but against the West Germans and your allies to make sure you're never caught. Well, and there were times when I was reading this book that I forgot I was reading about a military unit. It sounded very similar to the kind of operations that the CIA would run or that like a full-fledged intelligence agency would run overseas with, you know, there were chapters almost of the book where you don't think you're talking about a special operations unit, really thinking about a kind of traditional spy agency. Well, it, it reflects on its heritage with the OSS from World War II, who did similar things, but that was also one of the reasons why the unit was chosen to go into uh, Iran. As from the beginning, we had looked at vulnerabilities of targets, figured out how to get in and out of places that were denied areas, we called them. And when that came around in 1979, uh, when we had to go into Tehran, uh, the Army looked at the unit and said, you've got guys that are trained to do this. And not only that, they were trained as special forces, so they knew what to look for to help lead the um, rescue force in. Well, and that's a story that many, many people don't know. They may know the Argos story from the CIA. They may know the Desert One Eagle Claw story. But the realization that you had guys inside Tehran for a pretty long period of time, and even after the mission itself had failed, they're kind of sitting in there like, <clears throat> now what? Trying to figure out their way to get out. And I, I it was hard to believe the actual... Washington Post article said that there were special forces units 
inside Tehran while they were still inside Tehran. That's that had to you, you, if it was just a random guy, and not to kind of pump this unit up any more than it already has been. It's an amazing unit. But say if it was just a random person that didn't have that kind of training, that would have been the end of the mission. I mean, you, you're caught, you know. But your your guys were able to get out successfully, uh, and I've never get caught by a very very uh, at that point uh, alerted Iranian special police. One of the three gentlemen that went in is um, a very good friend of mine whom I correspond with frequently. And he told me basically that the day after Desert One happened, uh, he turned on the radio and almost cut his throat while he was shaving because someone in the Department of Defense uh, basically blew their cover. Um, if you talk to uh, Dick Meadows, unfortunately he passed away a couple of years ago, he attributes his life to that gentleman, getting them out of Tehran. And it was basically training, you know, and we had practiced it for years, and now they were actually uh, employing it, and that training kept those guys alive. Well, the crazy thing to me was my initial, my initial reaction if I was on the ground there and they had just outed me being in Tehran and, you know, the entire... Iranian population is looking to string me up from a, a lamppost would be get the hell out of the country as fast as you possibly could and they that was their initial idea also but then they had their training took over and they said no they're going to be looking for people trying to get out of Iran as fast as they possibly could so they actually kind of just sat there and waited which to me the kind of <laughs> I don't even know the patience is the wrong word that the knowledge and the training to say we're just going to sit here and the courage to not run for the hills is extraordinary to me. Well, that's, yeah, it's the training. And I think the, the gut reaction is to run for a home. And the best thing to do is to run the other direction uh, because they're going to be looking for you in one way, in one area. Uh, but if you, can, if you can put some time between you and you've got better time to evaluate what's going on, then, then you can better survive. We'll have more of the James in one minute, but let me take a moment to tell you about ZipRecruiter. As I've told you before, ZipRecruiter is a company that was founded by a group of guys who worked in the tech industry and with startups and realized the absolute worst thing about running an organization was a process of hiring people. Our new building is going up. It's starting to look like an actual building. You can actually see pictures of it online. Check out my Twitter feed. The construction of the museum is chugging away, but soon comes the hard part. We eventually need to hire a lot more people as we get closer to the opening. When we need to hire a new person, we want to get the very best people. And of course, who doesn't? But the process seems never-ending, and it can take a huge amount of time. Time we don't have as we try to run our current operation while planning the content for the new museum. The people at ZipRecruiter have the solution. So are you hiring? Do you know where to post your jobs to find the best candidates? With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike the other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. There's no juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, SpyCast listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. 
Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash first. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash first. One more time to try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash first. To shift focus a little bit, I want to underscore the the ability of the Berlin Brigade to, or the Detachment A within the Berlin Brigade to uh, only kind of fully go native, I think is probably the best way of putting it. There's a great anecdote that you tell that really demonstrates how uh, how people were able to create a cover that was almost perfect, where uh, there's a Berlin basketball team that was coached by one of the members of Detachment A, uh, and after they had waxed some other basketball team, the coach of the opposing team came up to the member of Detachment A, not knowing he was an American Special Forces officer, and was amazed because it, it seemed like the team had been coached a very like an American college team. Not realizing he was talking to an American officer <laughs> who, because the language was so good, the culture was so knowledgeable, the clothing, I mean, everything down to the way you describe in the book how you have to kind of follow the trends, the fashion trends of people in Berlin so that you're dressing like Berliners and not like Americans or not like anything. You can blend in as quickly as you possibly can. Well, that was probably one of the best instances I could describe in the book. There were failures, of course, um, and a few of those guys did not last long in the unit. Um, For example, in the 80s, a guy would come in and insist on chewing tobacco, which no German in his right mind would do. But he could not bring it to the point where he could give it up. As he insisted, he saw a German do it once. Well, it doesn't matter if one German does it, nobody else does. But, um, anyway, um, the majority of the people fell into their role and believed in it. Um, we had guys working in uh, local hospitals. Uh, we had uh, students at the uh, Free University who would pass themselves off as a complete different nationality. And they they live their they live their life uh, in the city as a Berliner, you know, whether it be a German or um, Hungarian or Spanish, uh, they could they could pass it off. We actually have the missions, specific missions, because some of them were. I mean, this is very varied. This wasn't a unit that just had that one stay behind mission their entire time. You're also used as a. Uh, essentially doing scientific and technological intelligence about new Soviet equipment, uh, the, you know, the, the kind of the traditional mission of the defense attaché, where you had official cover and you went into East Germany and there are some interesting anecdotes there. But a lot of the stuff, you know, coming back about learning about the T-80 and learning about the T-72 before that and learning about new Soviet weapons systems, I mean, this seems like a very key mission that, was done almost as an aside. Well, it actually was an aside, <laughs> but uh, the military liaison mission, which was the umbrella organization, was used by our unit uh, to look at our targets in East Germany. And the military liaison mission was was a joint operation. The Soviets did it in West Germany, the French, British, and Americans did it in East Germany, and it was a way basically to monitor each other to make sure that nobody was preparing for war. It was a legal spy mission. So we used that to stick our guys in the cars and travel with them uh, in East Germany. But to, to be a part of that mission, you had to know exactly what you were looking at. And that required everything from understanding 
what the antenna array on a truck meant uh, to being able to identify a tank when it was under a tarp. And uh, it was a very useful mission, but the unit got good at it, and the mission liked our people with it. So for 20, over 25 years, uh, we did that mission with them. And, and the Soviets and these Germans wanted to make that as hard as it possibly could yeah. while you're over there harassing you at every step. One of my favorite stories was a, I guess it was a mobile rocket launcher or something like that, uh, was chasing a bunch of your guys in a car. And instead of just turning tail and ran, running, they said, we can actually gather some pretty important information about this. And so they went the exact speed of the mobile rocket launcher and that helped them to understand how fast the actual machine could go, which is pretty extraordinary that they weren't, again, it's kind of the courage of these guys not just be like, oh my God, we're in a car and we're being chased by this massive track vehicle. They said, well, let's see how fast this thing can go. Yeah, I'm not sure that they were actually thinking that <laughs> precisely about it, but it seems to be that they got out in front of the truck and realized that it could do 50 miles an hour, so they should be able to do 55. And each increment gave them a better idea of what the thing could do. Uh, eventually, they escaped, so that's that's the best part of it. <laughs> well, one of, one of the other missions of this, this group that I thought was perfect for everyone involved was kind of the red teaming side of things where or even personal security where you had arguably one of the top trained military units in the world right in the middle of Europe that you could be used to help other people realize their vulnerabilities where you could be used to uh, provide security uh, not specifically like physical security but you could teach people where their actual vulnerabilities were by you know you acting as the bad guys it seems for decades this is a major role of detachment a it was and that really started in the early 60s when um the berlin commander tasked the unit to check out the security of the berlin mayor that was one of the first time and when after about two weeks they turned in the report to outlined four or five possible scenarios where the Berlin mayor could easily be kidnapped or killed, um, he found his uh, security profile changed abruptly. <laughs> so, uh, and that was, that was just um, a small snippet, and it, it continued on. Um, once their reputation was established, the unit kept doing it. So the red teaming um, was always a good way to look at a target because if you're going to break something you you have to be able to look at it intimately to understand how it works first and that's what the red dimming was all about and yes you could use it for vulnerability assessments to help people but at the same time it also taught you how to go in and break things well go speaking of going in and breaking things um talk about counterterrorism because that becomes uh what actually the predominant role during a certain time period of this unit. Um, and it's interesting, today we think that terrorism is a key role for the military and always has been. Uh, but there was a time period, especially at the very beginning of when Detachment A was brought in to do counterterrorism operations, that the military hadn't been really paying attention at all to terrorism as a role. Well, much like the police force in the United States, uh, the FBI and the police took the predominant role in uh, in combating terrorism in the United States. The military saw this and they said, well, that's obviously a law enforcement role. 
And this is one of the reasons why the United States was so reluctant to deploy forces in counterterrorism missions. It was only in the early 70s when the Israelis and the British SAS uh, started to have a couple of successes with their military that the American military paid attention. But even then, Delta Force and SEAL Team 6 didn't come around until the late 70s. Um, the US UCOM commander saw early on in 1972-73 that he needed something, and that's where detachment Well, it's not coincidental timing. I mean, this is right after the Munich Olympics fiasco. Well, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, as a matter of fact, the uh, guys down in Bad Dolts uh, offered to help the, the German police, and the German police said they could handle it by themselves. That, unfortunately, went very badly. Well, and right afterwards, the Germans decided they needed their own unit, GSG-9, to do direct action against counterterrorism. But again, that's a law enforcement unit. Yeah. Well, how how close was uh, the detachment's relationship with like GSG-9 or the SEK or these units that were designed to, to do this kind of work? We had good relationships with the GSG-9. Not so close, but um, maybe twice a year we would train with them. We had better relationship with the so-called SEK, the Sonderreinsatzkommando, uh, because the federal forces like GSG-9 could not come into Berlin. Uh, the SEK was our unit of choice to train with in the city. And they knew that we were some kind of a special unit, but they thought it was primarily towards protecting uh, the Berlin commander and, and counterterrorism. But that, that was a good relationship. And then, of course, the British, uh, the SAS. And that was, uh, SAS were an extremely capable force. They still are. In the 1970s and 80s, they were one of the prime movers, uh, along with the Israelis, on uh, counterterrorism. Well, and you can see why. I mean, they're constantly thinking about Northern Ireland and working in a combat zone against terrorists nonstop. I mean, that, yeah. that makes you pretty good, you know, kind of forces you to become pretty good. Yeah. For, for all their foibles, the, the British have a lot of experience in counter, counterinsurgency and counter-guerrilla warfare. So. What, um, interestingly enough, a lot of times you worked with these units, they had no idea who they were working with. I mean, you kind of alluded to it when you were talking a minute ago saying that, you know, they thought that you were kind of security. But you went and worked with the British and you worked with the Germans and you worked with the French and they had no idea that you were a U.S. Army Special Forces unit that was attached to Berlin. Well, they didn't know the Berlin part. Yeah. They knew we were a special forces unit, and most of them, we would uh, tell them that we came from Bad Holtz or from the United States. And so that uh, that sort of diffused the, the, the problem there uh, most of the time. Yeah. You already alluded to the fact that you were in two different named units that were essentially the same unit. And there's, a, you know, when Detachment A was eventually deactivated, can you tell a little bit about why uh, and how did the reactivation of a different name unit with the same basic mission, how did that solve some of those operational security issues? Well, as you mentioned, um, several articles after the Iran mission mentioned the fact that there was a special forces unit in Berlin. And when that hit the news, uh, the U.S. UCOM commander was um, upset, and he said, we've got a security problem. So the only way they could figure out, and this is the short story, figure out how to solve the problem was to deactivate one unit 
and create a new one completely separate and post it in Berlin, but under a new name, under a different cover, and in a different location. And that's basically what happened. Uh, the old unit went away, and uh, from looking at the historical records from the East German Security Service, the East Germans didn't even realize that it had gone away for another two years. And uh, they never figured out what the uh, purpose of the second unit was. So I'm not sure how the Russians uh, saw it, but uh, because their archives are now closed to us, right. they're no longer our friends. <laughs> but um, it seemed to have worked. Well, how? Because as you indicate in the book, the operational security wasn't necessarily the greatest, where they used a lot of the same personnel, some of the same trucks, some of the same wet. But things with serial numbers, they kind of just painted them a little differently. And if anyone was really paying close attention, that it was seen that the, you know, the TO&E or, or even some of the personnel were exactly the same from this unit that had been shut down. One would think that, but apparently they didn't put two and two together. So we always assumed they did, but uh, it appears that they did not. Um, I mean, people knew that the second unit was a special unit. Some of the Berlin police guys said, those guys look suspiciously familiar. Uh, they use the same tactics. They use the same weapons. Yeah, so... You wondered, but... Uh, but the officers had to w were pretend that they were MPs, right? The, everybody had to pretend they were MPs, which, which hurt some people's feelings terribly. But uh, <laughs> we, we have a lot of friends or listeners that are probably MPs, but the, the, the amount of training that some of these SF guys had to go through to wear the MP tab on their uniforms probably hurt a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, one... one one officer said it was probably the most, um, uh, the worst thing he ever had to do while he was in the military to put on the MP dams. But, you know, that's how it goes. <laughs> well, apparently, where I want to ask, I mean, how much, you know, now that you've talked about the Soviet archives are very difficult, the Russian archives are very difficult to get into. But how, going back to the full history, going back to 1956, how effective was the cover story how how much did the east germans know how much did the warsaw pact know i mean did they i mean they probably knew that there'd be people who were left behind but they were able to identify who you were did they know names did they have who the unit was we I mean, talk in the book about them being able to identify certain commanders and others but how much did they know from from the east german records um we figured out that probably six names were known to the the east germans over the years that's six names out of probably 800 um, they knew the location where the unit was. They knew which barracks it was in. Uh, they did not apparently know who the people were. So the unit worked under the premise that it was known and the East Germans would target it, which they certainly would, or the Russians. So the, the guy's plans was to disperse into the city and disappear as fast as possible. In the first days of a war, the total chaos that would ensue, one could hope that they would be able to disappear for days, if not weeks, uh, inside a city of several million people. It's like hiding in New York City with a fence around it. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's people's misconception about military units. You think that the unit would go off together and hide, but the idea behind this was everybody just scatter. And the ability to operate independently as, as a person or as a small team of two or three people was paramount to be able to be part of this unit. Well, I mentioned the tradecraft. And the tradecraft that you had to know was how to work undercover as an individual operator 
and as part of a team. So basically the unit was going to go underground and to use um, non-technical and technical communication devices to keep in touch and then only come together when they were ready to pull off a mission. So it was, it was an intricate plan and we had equipment stashed through the city um, in mission support sites, euphemistically called. So the, the unit could have easily operated. Because it sounds very similar to what the agency would end up doing. So what was the relationship with CIA? Or was there one? <laughs> it varied. Um, they were very good for training, uh, not so good for sharing information on uh, things. We, we would share information with them and they'd say thank you, but we'd hardly ever <laughs> hear anything back. Um, but the, the agency was primarily concerned with collecting intelligence. When war came, uh, the agency would basically have folded up operations. Well, because unlike the OSS that comes before everyone, the OSS turns into the CIA. Well, there's a dramatic difference in that the CIA really didn't have, certainly at the beginning of the time period, any established resistance organizations ready to pop up throughout Eastern Europe. Well, there were established resistance organizations in East Germany in the 50s and up until the 1960s, but as the East Germans perfected its security state, those fell off pretty rapidly. So what we would have worked with would have been um, resistance elements that came into being after the war started. And if we use World War II as an example, that could have been months or years uh, down the road. What about the relationship with other countries? Talk a little bit about the British already. Um, did the they didn't have much choice in the matter? But what did the West Germans welcome you being there? The West Germans did not know we were there. Uh, well, the British helpful. did not know we were there. <laughs> the French did not know we were there. I mean, they we would occasionally see guys in the British sector that we thought or suspected were SAS troopers. And they would come in, uh, they were not stationed in the city, but they looked very, their profile was very similar to ours. And I'm sure they, they thought the same thing, but uh, we did not work with them uh, informally once or twice, but not in the city, no. How widely known was the unit within the U.S. military? Not. Not? Uh, it was not widely known within uh, even special forces. Um, in fact, the units that were next to us uh, in the barracks quite often thought our only purpose was to assassinate all the technical security and intercept specialists. All <laughs> oh, right, that was yeah. a fantastic story that the, yeah. all the NSA guys thought it was your job to kill them if a war broke out. Yeah. Yeah. But they, <laughs> they had no clue what our real mission was or what we were supposed to be doing. When, when other units began to be stood up, like we talk about with like Delta and, and SEAL Team 6, um, that kind of took a piece of what was your mission before, and this is by the 1980s, did you see the mission beginning to shift again? The missions were always evolving. The wartime mission was evolving, uh, whereas we were going out to go to sabotage things uh, earlier. Uh, In the 1980s, we were more towards uh, intelligence collection and reporting stuff back to the Air Force so they can bomb it or hit it with a missile. Uh, Same thing with counterterrorism. As Delta Force uh, became uh, more established, um, 
they saw their role as being the national force. And whereas before there were two or three forces that sort of whittled down to Delta being the primary force, and then uh, Detachment A Berlin, for one, uh, being sort of a secondary uh, emergency uh, CT force. So it would, it would diffuse out a bit. They kept up their mission, uh, they kept up their um, qualifications and abilities uh, very well, but still it was Delta Force that was closer to the flagpole for one and able to establish themselves with the Pentagon. But it was the, um, it was the primary force and the other forces in Europe and South America and the Far East were relegated to a sort of a secondary role. What, what, what about the leadership at the Pentagon? Who knew about you? Was it just the Army Chief of Staff? Was it, was there, was it widely, widely known within the Pentagon? I can't imagine you would be able to keep this secret if it was too well dispersed within the hierarchy of the Pentagon. Well, there was a command and control mechanism uh, in the theater uh, called the Support Operations Task Force, later it became uh, Special Operations Command Europe. They were our primary conduit uh, back to the Pentagon. And then in the Pentagon, there was a office called J3 Special Operations. They were the ones that had their fingers on everything. So they knew what was happening. Um, in the end, that became sort of a a hindrance for us uh, in Berlin because we were so far away from the Pentagon that units like uh, Delta in the States were closer and could argue their point, argue for more support more forcefully than they could. Well, there's there's a penalty to being too secret. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and Delta also had kind of a very charismatic leader and Charlie Beckwith who was kind of pushing for the idea and pushing for... did did, did you obviously couldn't have someone coming out and heralding and championing you guys in Berlin because you wanted to maintain a secret unit. But were there were there commanders along the way that helped to solidify your role uh, in Berlin, but also to kind of help it to evolve in the way that you needed it to and you wanted it to? Were there any that stood out? Uh, there were. In the first unit, um, Stan Olshevik, uh, he was a Czech immigrant from the United, from uh, Europe, I came to the States uh, just before World War II. Uh, he was instrumental in um, pushing the unit into the Iran mission and uh, was a very forceful leader, but also very good with the men. And then a guy by the name of um, Bulldog Maroney. <laughs> and I call him a bulldog because that was his nickname, and he was tenacious as uh, a bulldog. And he, he took the unit steps further than Colonel Olshevik did. He was able to get us the support from uh, the Pentagon. He was quite often, more often in Washington than he was in Berlin. And that's really what you have to do in the military. If you want to get the support, you have to be able to go and push it. When he left the unit, that's when the unit started to go into its um, disbandment mode, I should say. Right. Yeah. Plus, that was also the time that the, the wall was coming down. Yeah, I mean, that was going to be my kind of next segue was, you know, your unit was, and you weren't with it necessarily at the time, but the, the unit itself was about as 
best place as you possibly could be when that transition took place, you know, when the wall is coming down as the, the unit that had been kind of devising plans for when that happened in a different way, right? When, when the wall came down because people were, Soviet tanks were coming through the wall versus the wall coming down because the Cold War is ending. Um, how, how early were there indications? Or did, they, did you guys have the ability to do the unit have the ability to see the writing on the wall before like the agency did. Did you start seeing, or were you surprised as everybody else? In in retrospect, I think more people should have seen it, but I, I don't think the East Germans even saw it. Um, the CIA did not call it uh, the the West German BND. Uh, the East German uh, Security Service did not call it. So we were surprised as everybody. And in fact, I think the. The, the first alert that anybody had was a telephone call to our duty officer that said, hey, uh, the wall just opened up, <laughs> which happened on the 9th of December. So it, it was a surprise to a lot of people. Well, how, how much of a, an asset were was the unit when all of a sudden you had thousands of people asking for asylum and for refugee status, and you may not have had people who understood the ins and outs of the East German military, but you had an entire unit sitting right there that had been studying the East Germans, studying the order of battle, studying the people, and who could speak fluent German or fluent languages that you now had Czechs and everybody else there. Did the, Was the unit offered up, or did they help with kind of the mess that, that followed November 8th? Well, the unit I, was actually quickly called in to, to help. Um, there was an organization that had been in place for a long time that interviewed uh, people that had come out of uh, the Soviet bloc, but they were overwhelmed quickly within days. And so they started interviewing people and uh, they realized they needed assistance. The unit got called in. Um, the guys would go in and help with the interrogation. If it was a military subject, our guys would get uh, uh, utilized quite a bit. Um, and if they realized it was an intelligence issue, they would turn them over to the, the appropriate people. So they, they were well utilized up until the end. The end, obviously, there's no mission anymore for you know, the stay-behinds in Berlin. Uh, but do you see, looking at the 25 years since, 27 years since, do you see where some of the ideas, some of the missions, some of the innovations of this unit have spread into the army of today or the military of today, whether it's through CT or COIN or uh, anything else that may have been innovative? Because there's a lot that was innovative from this unit. Do you see any of that spreading into military operations today? Well, I see counterterrorism less so as uh, a contribution that the unit can make uh, because uh, there are two very capable units uh, in existence now, plus the what is called the um, crisis intervention forces uh, that that are quite capable. So CT is off the books. Counterinsurgency also not, but I think where the lessons that this unit used or learned. Um, come out strongest is unconventional warfare. The use of uh, what the Russians called the little green men right. in eastern Ukraine come to mind. But um, as a matter of fact, since the book has come out, uh, the military has begun uh, talking more about uh, relooking the old mission, 
what uh, what special forces has been doing predominantly in Afghanistan and Iraq is direct action. You know, going in and hitting a target, right. uh, capturing people, um, blowing things up, which is a necessary mission. But uh, the unconventional warfare of going in and influencing the people and changing things through political or not so military means is, is a skill that has fallen off. Well, it's a teaching, right? I mean, SF was kind of designed as the teachers who kind of teach insurgents how to be insurgents. And uh, SF lately seems to have become a lot more kinetic and a lot more shooters instead of teachers. That's, that's true. There are some detachments that are still doing um, the teaching role uh, in the Philippines. You see them working with the Philippine Army um, and sometimes in uh, South America. Um, in, Afghanistan, in Afghanistan and Iraq, you see them, but they're teaching counterinsurgency tactics rather than insurgent tactics. Right. But those, those, the insurgent tactics are extremely necessary. You have to know how to form an insurgency before you can fight it. And this is one area where special forces could do more, I think, is to go in and work with the Iraqis or the Afghans to form small units to go in and infiltrate the insurgent organizations like the Taliban or ISIS. It's an extremely dangerous mission, but it can be done. Well, the mission that was originally designed for Detachment A, you know, you could argue is popping back up again a little bit, not necessarily there's no West and East Berlin, but the Baltic states, you know, Western Ukraine, areas that have to combat the little green men running around. Um, not that you have any specific information about this, because and I wouldn't, you wouldn't want to tell us if you did. Uh, but would you would you give advice to the Estonians or to the East, uh, Western Ukraine or to the U.S. military that now has brigade combat teams? These places to think about using Detachment A as a model for operating in the future. I think the best thing I can say at this point, if I want to retain my security clearance, <laughs> is to say that it's being looked at um, very, very intensely, and actually there are initiatives already in motion. So I think the lesson has been realized that it was lost and now needs to be relearned. Hey, keep your clearance. Keep your clearance. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to say anything that shouldn't. I, I do want to say something about this book because I, I I tend to read four or five books a week because of the job, and uh, most of them I go through very, very quickly. Uh, this is arguably one of the bigger compliments I can get. It actually took me a while to work through this book, and the reason that's a compliment is because I kept stopping and rereading stuff going, I couldn't, couldn't have read that right, and going back and actually using my personal hand computer to Google some stuff to kind of make sure I understood what I was reading. And it wasn't where I could blaze through a chapter and be like, I get the idea. I kind of wanted to understand this a little more because I've, I've done a ton of reading on this, obviously. Uh, but it was, this is an area of the Cold War, which is you know my specialty, that I didn't quite understand as well. So I, I, I do, I want to give you a ton of credit for uh, writing a book that kind of surprised me. It's, it's rare that it happens and it's even rarer that I admit it. So I will admit it out here that I was I was pleasantly surprised to see about this unit that would have been so instrumental if the war had broken out, and even though it didn't, was incredibly instrumental in helping to shape counterterrorism, helping to work in so many different areas. Again, we'd like to thank ZipRecruiter for continuing to support the SpyCast family. 
Remember, you can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free, by just going to ZipRecruiter.com slash first. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash first. And the name of the book is Special Forces Berlin, Clandestine Cold War Operations of the U.S. Army's Elite, 1956 to 1990. Uh, James, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here on SpyCast. We truly appreciate your time. Well, it's been a pleasure, and I enjoy the museum, and I've enjoyed my time here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at intlspycast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.